0: Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind the scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: They wanted to make it a case for free speech, not a
0: case against religion. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing?
2: I'm good. How are you, Steve?
0: I'm good. I, uh, I, uh, uh, have a little, um, story to tell about, uh, how, uh, I impressed my kids this weekend. And that's always, especially, you know, it's easy to do, I I guess Raz will learn this. It's easy to do when your kids are very young, they look up to you. They think you're, you hung the moon, you're the hero. Uh, once you have an 18 year old and a 15 year old, they're not quite as especially daughters, you know, they're, uh, you know, they, um, not quite as easily to impress, but I uh, after you talked about it and after my 15 year old watched it, uh, I watched Squid Games oh. <laughs> and uh, and I, and in it, I um, I, uh, uh, I after watching the second or third show and I won't ruin this for anybody. But after watching the second or third show, I, I told my daughter, my 15 year old, I said, I have a theory about this show and about you know why it was the way it was and uh, and I turned out to be exactly one hundred percent right that you don't learn until the very last episode. very um, cool. so so my my fifteen year old was uh, very impressed that I was able to guess the uh, the my theory of the show uh, so early on.
2: yeah, so you'll have you'll have to tell me what it was when we're not um, at risk of spoiling anything. but yeah, you know what's most important to me. Yes. Did you
0: watch subs w- or dubs? I watched the subs, basically ma- mainly because of what you said. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> uh, which good. is, uh, we, we did, let's make it sure everybody understands. You got it. Since it's uh, in Korean, uh, it's better to watch it with subtitles than it is with uh, with dubs because you lose a lot in the in the dub yeah. translation for some reason.
2: Something something weird about them trying to cram English into the right amount of time and the and the movement mm-hmm. of the mouths. So yeah. weird that uh, doesn't match up quite right
0: yeah exactly anyway anyways well sadly I, uh, that's
2: not what the, that's not what what our podcast is about What we watched well, what we watched on the weekends <laughs> I, I actually
0: had a point on why we're talking about school oh, games okay. can you guess why no no because it's about survival of the fittest look at that
2: <laughs> look at that Way to go! (laughs) Bringing it all together, which which brings
0: me all the way around to Charles Darwin and uh, and the Origin of the Species that he wrote in 1859, which uh, which ultimately uh, leads to uh, the case that we're going to be talking about today, which is a special uh, a special edition, and uh, we're going to be talking about the case of Tennessee, the state of Tennessee versus John Scopes, otherwise known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, that was tried in 1925. And, uh, and we are uh, so pleased to have on the podcast, uh, Professor Edward Larson, uh, Professor, uh, the, let me say it right, the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law at the Caruso School of Law at uh, Pepperdine University. Uh, Dr. Larson, how are you doing? I'm, do- I'm
1: doing just fine. Uh, and I'll just add, I'm also the University Professor of History here. So I do teach yes. history as well as law.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad i
1: to, glad to be here. Glad to be talking to a Georgian.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We, we, we will mention I, I'm going to tell everybody about your background. But uh, for a good about 20 years, uh, Dr. Larson was the uh, was the Richard B. Russell Professor of History and the Talmadge Chair in Law at the University of Georgia. So uh, so he's uh, he, he's he's talking to a couple of Georgians uh, again my, to come back my alma mater. Yeah. So I'll be back
1: there in a couple of weeks, I guess. I don't know when this podcast I may be there when this podcast is playing. I'll be uh, back with my old friends there in Athens uh, sitting in the press box for one of the games.
0: Oh, oh great. Which game are you uh, which game are you going to go to? Because uh, I might be up there for it and Yvonne may be up there for it. I I'll be know. there
1: for the Missouri game. Oh, OK. nice. I used nice. to be on the athletic board when I was at Panton, Georgia.
0: Very good. Very good. Well,
2: yeah.
0: Well, uh, so uh, Dr. Larson is, uh, I I mean, uh, to talk about his accomplishments and what he's done would take up most of the podcast. So I'm going to just kind of go through it quickly. Uh, Dr. Larson is a graduate from Williams College, got his law degree from Harvard Law School. Uh, then went on to get his PhD in history from Wisconsin University and uh, got a uh, honorary doctorate of human letters from Ohio State University, uh, has taught at just a number of schools, including the University of Georgia, and and, uh, as Professor Larson just mentioned, both at the law school and at the undergrad uh, in the history department for Pepperdine um, University. And uh, he practiced law in Seattle was counsel to the United States House of Representatives, uh, has written fourteen books in more than a hundred articles, uh, and in 2016 was the uh, lecturer to the Supreme Court uh, Historical Society, and uh, and I also noticed a uh, an avid uh, Wisconsin football fan, so uh, we won't hold that against him. But uh, but mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Larson. The nice thing about being a
1: Wisconsin first football fan is it usually doesn't offend anyone. If you're Ohio (laughs) State or Notre Dame or Alabama fan, uh, you've got you've automatically made a lot of enemies. But that's right. I don't think anybody (laughs) dislikes Wisconsin.
2: So uh, go ahead. Dr. Larson, I just have to ask, how did you um, you know, you've managed to pursue, you know, a diverse career and be successful in both. I mean, to pursue the law, to pursue um, history, to write. Did you always feel, you know, I always felt like I kind of had to pick at some point. Did you always feel like you could balance all these things or did you just have the determination? You're going to follow all your interests. Tell us about that.
1: Well, it's still a little focused. It's still not everything. Um, and there is a, a a relationship as we're talking Today we're talking about a trial, a great trial, probably the best-known misdemeanor trial in American history. Right. Um, the um, and so that relates to both history and law. So I tend to find ways to bring them together. The um, so in that sense, I haven't viewed my. No, I'm not. I've never viewed myself as a Renaissance person with all these different areas. I I tend to look at work at things that work together. I tend to try to bring, the advantage of having two different expertise is um, then if you bring them together, you can do a better job than somebody who's just in one of the two fields. So they're better people than I am probably in history and they're probably better people in constitutional law. But when you combine the two topics, You know, I've got an edge because I have both. And I need all the I need every bit of an edge (laughs) if I can get.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, probably the most important thing that I didn't mention, and the reason why we're having you on this podcast to talk about the, uh, the Scopes Monkey Trial is because in 1998, you uh, published the book and wrote the book, uh, Summer for the Gods, uh, the Scopes Trial in America's Continuing Debate Over Science and Religion, and won a, a small prize known as the Pul- uh, Pulitzer Prize, uh, which... Yeah, I think most people have heard of before. So uh, so it, and and I, I will tell you, I read the book. It's a fantastic book. And uh, and I would recommend highly if anybody wants to learn more about the Scopes Monkey trial, uh, get Summer for the Gods. It's uh, it not only does it do a great job in talking about the trial itself, but talking about sort of the lead up to the trial and what was going on in the country. Prior to to the trial happening and the and the laws being passed and then uh, after the trial and what happened uh, all the way up until, um, you know, into modern history.
2: Yeah, I'm so excited for this episode, because even in just preparing for the episode, I can't I cannot believe how much I did not know, even if you focus on just the case and not the historical context, not what's leading up to it, not what comes after. I can't believe how much I didn't know. And and maybe part of that, maybe I went to school in Tennessee (laughs) (laughs) through undergrad. I don't know if that's part of it. Um, But I, you know, I was aware of it, obviously, but that was really it. I had no idea um, just the things related to this trial I can't believe it. N- knowing now how much I didn't know and probably how much I'm about to learn through this conversation, I feel like I knew, I knew absolutely nothing. I might as well have known nothing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the so funny thing about the trial, that it has, you know, here it was um, almost 100 years ago and it was just a misdemeanor trial in a small town in Tennessee. And yet it remains the best known trial of its type ever in American history. And that to me is amazing that here it's a trial, not over some grisly murder like um, OJ Simpson or Fatty Arbuckle or something like that, but over an idea and that it's had such resonance. And I was just teaching um, this semester, I'm a visiting uh, professor up at Yale. And um, one of the, I was sitting in with a class and the professor said, you know, I bet none of the students even have heard of the SCOPES trial. So he 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 asked them and they almost all had heard of it. And that's this generation. So it continues yeah. somehow, even though Inherit the Wind is no longer required watching for everybody, it's not on all the time. Still the trial, thanks in part to Inherit the Wind, but it's continuing significance has somehow uh, remained in a consciousness when, you know, I think Americans in general, young Americans don't really know their history as well as they used to because there's so other, so many other things. Mm-hmm. And yet, this one has sort of hung on.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you know, and it was funny because when Yvonne and I were talking beforehand uh, about this, I, I was sort of uh, talking about, you know, uh, about the setup of, you know, when would we normally consider it a great trial when uh, basically is a misdemeanor criminal case. That involved about the uh, about two hours worth of actual evidence put on by the prosecution, the jury was out for a total of nine minutes. And at the end of the day, the judge gave a fine of $100. Uh, And yet, as you described, uh, Dr. Larson, this is uh, maybe the most significant trial uh, in American history.
2: It's it's definitely not quite a it's it's very different from the usual cases we talk about, except I think a lot of times when um, Derek Alexander Pope comes on the show, it reminds me of that where we're talking about a case that is um, strategic to 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 um, to raise an issue, to bring an issue to the forefront and get those those legal issues um, decided. But so I think even approaching it, I was thinking about some of the civil rights cases that we've talked about with Derek and and kind of, you know, that side of it, of, of thinking about a test case and whatever. Um, but then actually, as we'll talk about, you know, what actually went on with this trial is so on another level <laughs> from the cases that we talk about with Derek in terms of just the theater and the spectacle and the, the um, you know, some of the folks involved. Um, so anyway.
1: You're, yeah. act, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a test case and it was brought as a test case. We have other test cases. So there are test case trials, which is like Roe versus Wade was really a, um, and uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And that's one distinction I make. There are, there are certainly judicial decisions like Brown versus Board of Education or or um, Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott that are more famous. What I was trying to narrowly focus on, it, in this case, it's the trial. Nobody knows at all anything. and they don't need to know anything about the trial in Roe versus Wade, or the trial even in Dred Scott. But here, it's the trial that became important not the ultimate result so it's not the decision there's certainly more visible better known decisions hands down but at the actual trial it's almost one of its kind and that was partly because of the issues involved partly because it was intentionally a test case partly because the way the town handled it mm-hmm. as a show trial but the way the media picked it up but also the chief litigants on both sides they were superstars yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, really just crazy. Well, uh, let me just give a, a quick rundown of the case uh, and uh, the, sort of an overview, and then we'll start talking about how we got to uh, to this trial. So, the, so this was a case against uh, John Scopes, who was a substitute biology teacher at a high school in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, and essentially, the law that had been passed was the Butler Bill uh, that had been passed by or had been brought by John Butler and got known as the Butler Bill. And essentially what that said was um, that it outlawed the teaching, uh, any teaching that denies the divine creation of man uh, in the Bible and uh, to teach man is descended and in, instead to teach man is descended from lower order of animal. It's essentially, and I didn't say that as good as, it, as it's written, but essentially that's what it did. It, it outlawed the teaching of uh, uh, evolutionary um, uh, um, uh, development of man. Um, and basically what happened, and we'll talk a little bit more about how, um, about how the case came to be, but, uh, this was passed in Tennessee. Um, the ACLU saw this as a potential test case. They put out a, um, they put out a, a, um, uh, a notice or an announcement that, um, they wanted to do a test case. So the, the people, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go, the people in Dayton, Tennessee saw this as an opportunity, uh, to sort of, um, create some, um, uh, notoriety for the town. And, uh, and so they came up with a plan to have John scopes t- stand trial. Um, as we'll talk about a number of just, uh, uh, legal political, um, scientific and religious superstars all sort of converge on the town of Dayton, Tennessee to become, um, to become, uh, you know, part of the trial. And ultimately the trial, uh, lasts for about, uh, seven to eight days, I think. And, uh, at the end, John Scopes is convicted of teaching uh, evolution. Uh, and, and by the way, he was teaching from a text that had been approved by the state of Tennessee, which I always thought was interesting. And I never knew until I read uh, Dr. Larson's book, but um, but got convicted of that. The judge then imposed a fine of $100. Uh, it goes up on appeal. We'll talk about what happens on the appeal uh, as we go along. Um, and um, but anyways, that's the basic overview of Tennessee versus Scopes, and um, and Dr. Larson, I'd like to start out. I think of of uh, you know before we get into sort of the cast of characters that was involved. Just you know how the country got to this point of you know why they started legislating um, divine creation or, or or legislating against evolution being taught in the schools.
1: Yeah, that's the key question because it wasn't a one off by Tennessee, or it wouldn't have made any difference. Um, it would be equivalent to a test case today involving um, anti-abortion restrictions, such as occurs recently in Texas or Mississippi, or um, some gun control laws in New York or Chicago, because you were part of a national movement. And that's what made it visible. And I do want to underscore one thing you said, the law only banned the teaching of human evolution.
0: Right.
1: Any other type of evolution was fine. So these people weren't like modern day um, creationists who are advocating that the world was created uh, less than 10,000 years ago and that all the species were created exactly as described in the Bible. They didn't actually even believe that. Nobody believed that back then. That's a more recent phenomenon. What it was, was um, that with the rise of what's called social Darwinism, but is really more tied with the writings of Spencer, is that there was this sense of survival of the fittest. And we were right after World War I. And it was promoted in the United States, and to some extent it's true, that Germany Uh, or at least some of the leaders in Germany were defending what they did in World War I Mm. on a survival of the fittest mentality. In America, many of the robber barons uh, like John D. Rockefeller and J.D. Hill expressly, Carnegie as well, expressly defended what they did, um, how the exploitation of labor, the building of big industries um, on Spencerian grounds. They said, "This is survival of the fittest. This is how we are," and so you had this this identification of of this idea of of progress, and that's what they viewed it. That's what a person like Carnegie or the Germans, or or same way with imperialism. Teddy Roosevelt would talk about this all the time with uh, with his overseas trying to take over uh, more of the world or the or the British, or the Belgians with the Congo that were a superior race, were a, were survival of the fittest, where Germany's uh, system is preferable. So there was a lot of this conversation going on both domestically and inter- internationally. And naturally it aroused opposition. Most visibly, it depends on where, Um, uh, uh, in England, um, the Prime Minister Gladstone, in America, William Jennings Bryan, three times nominated for for president by the Democrats in over the turn of the century, who was also a a devout conservative Christian, many religious groups, um, a whole variety of people had problems with this. And so to the extent it was identified,
0: So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing.
2: That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of.
0: Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into. But it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital marketing is great at it.
2: Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah, it's not like they'd already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell
2: them tell them we sent
1: you. During World War 1, which ended in 1918, and just after that, when we were going through the trauma of labor unrest, we were going through the trauma of the Bolsheviks taking over in Russia and trying to export their revolution. We were going to the Spanish flu and all the deaths that were happening. And we know personally how a pandemic affects us all mentally, that closed incense, and that happened with the Spanish flu as well, which was many more deaths than uh, than COVID. And then you also have the roaring 20s where capitalism is back and the uh, and big business and labors being crushed uh, by people like Henry Ford. And that whole sense led to a a, a kickback that was not just religious. It was also among some progressives like William Jennings Bryan, it also reflected a concern about what was happening with militarism, with industrialism, with with, uh, global, global imperialism. And laissez faire capitalism coupled with the religious objections that God says humans are created. Forget the details of Genesis. Just the whole sense of Christianity and of Judaism is that God's, that people are created in God's image and we progress through love, where survival of the fittest is we progress through competition and hate. And those senses. So it wasn't limited to some sort of a of a right wing religious conservative, extreme conservatism. It was much more broadly based than that. And you couple with it with the labor movement and their sense. And so William Jennings Bryan, with others, launched a crusade about 1920. Against first teaching evolution. In general, and then really focusing it on public schools. And he would crusade. He was a, he had, he had ju- he had stepped down as Secretary of State in protest over Wilson's drift to World War I. He didn't, he, he thought the war was inappropriate, unnecessary, we shouldn't get involved. We all know in retrospect he was right. The century would have been much better if America had never been involved in World War I choosing between those two sides and all we did was lead to an unjust peace. But by 1920, everybody in America felt that way, too, that we just it's like everyone thinks of Iraq war now. I mean, what a mess. And us being in World War One, what a mess. We just made it worse. And so um, that this crusade started up and he started crusading widely. Now, the scientists and a lot of the cultural elite and certainly the, the wealthy class, respond back and saying different things. First, the wealthy class believed in survival with this. But with the scientists, they said, wait a minute, Darwinism doesn't lead to that. It's the philosophy of Spencer. And so there was a nuanced reaction that, wait a minute, this is not, you're, you're doing the wrong thing here. And so th- that, and Brian had crusaded in many states, there were bills all over the country, north, south, east, and west. It only happens that the first one that finally passes, others had passed in one house, lesser restrictions had passed in many states, um, such as no evolution in the textbooks or this or that. But the first one that actually banned the teaching of human evolution totally in all public schools, which technically would include the University of Tennessee and other places where of course evolution was being taught. um, That was the first time you had a, a clean, Bill. And it involved Brian going to the state legislature, speaking to a joint house of the legislature, uh, crusades by people like Billy Sunday supporting this. A lot, considerable cultural support by the Vanderbilt agrarians, which was a cultural movement coming out of Vanderbilt at the time, a lot of great writers. And so Tennessee passed this law. And the ACLU back then was really focused on free speech and academic freedom. And they viewed this as a violation of free speech and academic freedom, but they didn't, they weren't in league with the robber barons and the the uh, economic elite, but here they were unusually. They had mostly been defending labor leaders. Now, suddenly they had the support. In fact, it was the, they raised more money on this trial than any trial they'd ever hosted uh, because suddenly they had the right wing supporting them, at least the business classes and uh, the main universities. And they put together a. A, um, an elite advisory board that included the presidents of Harvard, Columbia, Wisconsin, uh, Stanford, Berkeley, Michigan, you just name it, they had them on the advisory board. And uh, so they went after this law saying, this is a restriction on academic freedom, freedom of speech, where Brian, who volunteered, to be a part of the prosecution, even though he hadn't tried a case in 50 years. Um, he had been a secretary of state, he'd been a writer, he'd been a member of Congress, but before that, he was a district attorney. He, um, they defended on the right, says, wait, we're talking about public schools. And parents, taxpayers, voters should be able to determine what happens in the public school. They can go out and teach evolution all you want to in the street corner. You can do it in a private school, but parents should be able and taxpayers should be able to decide what happens in public school. So that's the way the trial was framed. And you could see how since this had been a nationwide issue and Brian was literally the most famous Democrat in the country from his three terms running for president, his brother had been the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket just the year before in in 1924, he was still very visible. And then Clarence Darrow, the most famous trial lawyer of all American history, volunteers on the other side, you just had a national and you were in a decade of celebrity journalism. Remember, this is the decade of Babe Ruth and and, uh, Rudolph Valentino. This is celebrity journalism with the Penny Press and the yellow uh, Yellow Journalism. And my gosh, this was just the biggest thing that had happened.
0: Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you, that I didn't understand when I, when I, until I read your book, was that um, when Brian was initially pushing for these anti-evolutionary uh, laws, that he was actually pushing for them not to have any sort of a penalty attached to them because he was afraid that um, it would become a spectacle and then all of a sudden there'd be you know, become like national news when more when it could just be more of a statement against uh, teaching evolution. So it seems like he would have uh, at least when what he was initially saying would have been against the Tennessee law as far as the penalty provision of it. What, what's your sense of why Brian decided to get involved with the entire process after they passed a law that he at least initially didn't seem like he was uh, supportive of?
1: You're absolutely right. The law went further than he wanted. He thought that having a penalty would only create martyrs. Remember, Brian was a master of PR. He was, you know, the boy order of the Platte. He was this charismatic speaker. He was a great natural politician. And he thought that if you have a penalty, you're going to create a martyr. But if you simply pass a law saying it is illegal, as he had done in Florida, it is illegal to teach evolution, well, then if any teacher does it, they would look like they're the bad guys because they're disobeying the law. And um, so what happened was John Butler went further than Brian won. Brian came, and made his pitch, packed house, statewide attention, spoke around the state. But John Butler went one step further and made it a basically a gross misdemeanor, which was the exact same penalty back then during Prohibition uh, for um, uh, a liquor violation for making um, moonshine in Tennessee. It was the exact same uh, penalty. And uh, Brian, what Brian did is Brian thought it was important to uphold the principle of the law. So he said right at the outset, I will join the prosecution in support. And if we succeed in convicting him, I will pay the penalty. Right. So he said, right at the outset, I'll pay the penalty. We don't want a penalty. I'll pay the hundred dollars or whatever the fine is. And it was it had to be between one and five hundred dollars and the judge imposed the minimum. So Brian offered to pay it right up top and he was clear that he didn't want to create a martyr and he, he was right because if they hadn't had that, it would be like Florida and it would instead be the, the teacher who was the scoff law, who went ahead and taught against it, and then they could bring pressure within the school district saying, no, you can't do it, or maybe fire him or something like that. In this case, of course, it was a test case. Scopes had never taught evolution. It was simply brought to test the constitutionality and the validity of the law. So uh, it, But Brian got around his one qualm by saying, I'll pay the fine.
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about uh, how this case specifically comes to be. I, I, I think it's an, uh, just a fascinating case with how the citizens of Dayton, Tennessee, just a, a tiny town. I think the whole population was about thirteen hundred people uh, basically, uh, you know, decided to make their, you know, Dayton the centerpiece of this test legislation uh, with encouragement from the ACLU. Um, talk, talk about that story a little bit, because I think it's really fascinating.
1: Well, it was a publicity stunt, but remember we're in the middle of the, the decade of celebrity. Celebrity journalism, celebrity everything. Um, and so one person in the town who opposed the law, a person he'd written articles to the newspaper opposing the law and saying it shouldn't be passed. Uh, he was a, um, he ran the, the mines had closed down. Actually, got that's important in the sense that the town had they built the railroads after the civil war it's not an old town it was in the hill country of republican east tennessee tennessee back then the east eastern part was republican it had been it had not it had supported the north during uh the civil war and they built railroad lines down and they'd open up blast furnace there for the local um local coal and iron in the area and then it closed down and so they had went up in population, it was a new town founded in the 1880s, and now it was declining, it was in decline. And so um, they, this local person who managed the mines, a northerner, who managed the mines for the the closed-down blast furnace for the company, and a civil engineer, and didn't like the law, and so he read this article, in the Chattanooga paper talking about the ACLU willing to challenge it. So he went down to the uh, local uh, drug store, Robinson's Drugstore. Store. Uh, the owner happened to also be the head of the school board. And by the way, he sold, um, because he was the head of the school board, incestuous back then, um, you didn't get free textbooks, you bought them, and he sold the textbooks. And so on the shelf was the, uh, the required, it wasn't just approved. The, they had statewide required textbooks as they still do in Texas. And this was the required textbook for biology. And it is purely evolutionary, not only evolutionary, it endorses, you know, eugenics and, and survival of the fittest and the, uh, the re- ascendancy of the races and how the white race was the highest of all, all these things that so offended, um, these folks. So it was blatantly, um, violates the law, but the governor, when he signed the law, the governor didn't like the law, but he signed it as a concession to get more funding for public schools. And he said he didn't, he thought it was just a, uh, uh, it, he thought it wasn't serious legislation. He said, this is just a statement of people's will. Um, we don't violate it. No school in the state violates it. And he not even looked at his own textbooks. Well, anyway, um, down goes this, um, uh, Rappelier was his name. And, uh, started talking to Robinson and those there about this possibility of bringing a little publicity to their town. And remember their town was Republican. So it wasn't Brian country. In Brian's three runs for president, he had never carried this county, Ray County. So they weren't really tied to the law. And they liked the idea of having uh, a test case. He said it will bring hundreds of thousands of people into the town to watch it. Uh, It ended up bringing quite a few people into town. And uh, uh, so they agreed. They talked it over. They brought in the school principal um, and the uh, superintendent of schools. And, of course, the drugstore owner was the chairman of the school board. And their only issue was who to – they couldn't quite get their minds around what the ACLU was intending. What the ACLU intended – and I've read all their private papers – was to have what was known as a um, a civil action that would test the constitutionality, where you challenge it. What they thought is, we need a criminal case, and the regular biology teacher was also the principal, and they didn't want to put him through the um, ringer with this. And so they thought of John Scopes, who was first year teacher. He he taught middle school uh, a science not high school science. the middle school of science doesn't include bio, uh, evolution. And But he had substituted for the principal on occasion. So and they knew he didn't like the law. He was 25 years old. He'd gone to University of Kentucky, but they brought him down as a football coach. He's also the football coach. He was well-liked. So he was. the school year was over. He was off playing tennis. So they sent someone out to find him. They brought him down to the drugstore and asked him if he'd stand for the case. And he... Said, I've never taught evolution. He says, Well, you did sit in on the class. I don't think that matters. We can we can cover that if you're willing to do it. So, you know, he had no fixed intention to stay in Dayton. They promised he'd have his job back. It wasn't like a hostile prosecution. They guaranteed he'd have his job back the next year. So, he, and he didn't like the law. So he agreed. He signed up. He was single and just lived in a boarding house there. So he agreed to uh, test the law and. Then they they swore out his arrest. He never went to jail, despite if you've seen the, the the movie, which starts with him. Well, if you've seen the play, it starts with him in jail. The right. actual play does, and it's like a um, the play Inherit the Wind. He never goes to jail. Indeed, he goes immediately on a publicity tour for the uh, uh, ACLU. They take him on a publicity tour. He goes up to Chicago speaks at the Field Museum, he goes to New York, speaks at the American Museum of Natural History. The directors of all these were on the ACLU board bringing the case. He goes down to the um, Washington DC and speaks at the Supreme Court. Uh, he makes a publicity tour around the country. He becomes a bit of a star in all this. He's never oppressed by it. And of course, there's no there's no hostility in the town. The town was taking it all as, a, as really a summer festival.
0: Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed.
2: Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me.
0: Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services.
2: That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever.
0: I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now legal technology services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized looking good. Our depositions our hearings, our mediations have all changed and a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of legal technology services so they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number they'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want and it actually flows really well. I do have to say I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services.
2: Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them.
0: Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, Just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com, and I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide, and they—I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: It's it's so crazy. It also makes me think. I mean, this is kind of an aside, but it makes me think of. Um, especially the textbook situation, this made the rounds on the internet lately, but I immediately recognized it when I was growing up and they had, and this was probably middle school, but it was like, a um, I don't know if it was like a history textbook or social studies or whatever it was, but part of it was on ancient Egypt. And there was, there's like this picture of a Pharaoh, like wearing like the, you know, it's got sort of like the King Tut or what we think of as King Tut kind of like headdress thing. And it's the whitest looking guy. I mean, okay. it looks like Ronald Reagan or somebody like that. Um, and when I was reading about this case and learning more about the background that I had previously known and and, and reading about your work, for, um, Dr. Larson, I just was, it immediately made me think of that textbook because even though I thought the background of this case was different, by the time I heard about it, I did think it was like a prayer in school type issue, like a pe- for somebody you know people wanting to keep religion in schools versus um, versus not, or or science based versus versus religious based. But it did make me think of how, especially when you're young. You know, that text, I mean, maybe it's different now, but back then, you know, that textbook was kind of like your lifeline. Like you, it, n- it would never occur to me to question something in, that, in my textbook, including that this is exactly what pharaohs looked like. <laughs> like, yes. like Ronald Reagan. Oh, your
1: wonderful point, because that's one reason I contend that the trial continues to resonate because it is, look what we're going through now. We're going debates of whether schools or textbooks can talk about critical legal, critical race theory, or whether they can. Um, um, I mean, that'd probably be the best example from right now. Mm-hmm. But there's always like that. Whatever the issue is, schools and what is taught in schools, like about American history. Mm-hmm. What can we teach about American history? What can we teach about this? What can we teach about that? And because those issues when you understand this issue, this issue is much like that. It's a cultural, it's a cultural battle, not just a religious battle, it's a cultural battle, much like um, the critical race theory today. And it would be opposed and supported back then, if you were living in the days of the robber barons and the days of, of Herbert Spencer's philosophy and imperialism, it would be a lot like the issue today that goes just beyond religious grounds, goes into different areas, That hits a lot of cultural hot buttons. And so the trial can resonate, resonate because remember, there hadn't been public high schools much before this. The first, oh, there was the isolated, you know, Boston Latin, but there was no mandatory requirement. Schools didn't have compulsory attendance laws for high school until about 1920. Tennessee indeed had just passed theirs at the same time they passed this law. So people used to have to go maybe to 8th grade but you don't get evolution between now and 8th you don't get anything controversial before in, in in elementary school. It's the later the issues come up. And so these issues this was the first of that type and that's why it's one thing I love to do I started cutting them out. There is so often when there's an issue issue arises anywhere, California, Massachusetts, Tennessee, doesn't matter where it arises, when they write about it, the headline in the newspaper, right, calls it the trial or the text, calls it a son of scopes or scopes too. And ever since I've been following this, since the um, 1990s when I started writing about it, I've been saving those stories. And in all those years I have cut out Hundreds of newspaper articles that say Scopes 2 or Son of Scopes, but I never yet have seen one that says Scopes 3 or Grandson of Scopes. Right. <laughs> right. They always go right, no matter what the issue, they go right back to Scopes and they forget all the intervening trials. So that helps give it legs. And that's what makes it mm-hmm. relevant in the way it's prosecuted and pushed and the way it's picked up by the media right and left. We had a divided media back then. They all ran it with their own with their own take
2: yeah
0: yeah so uh, I, I uh, I'll, in the interest of full disclosure I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this Yvonne, but I uh, I was actually raised seventh day Adventist and and Dr. Larson talks about the Adventists a lot in the um, uh, in in his book and they are a fundamentalist group uh, Christian group, and they believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, and that's the way I was brought up. And I can remember, I went to school, it was all the way up through high school at a Seventh-day Adventist school, and I can remember uh, in my sophomore high school class being tested on why divine creation was true and evolution was untrue. And, you know, and you were giving answers like, you know, we're not still coming from apes now, uh, kind of thing. And that would be like an acceptable answer. Um, but so it's just interesting. I mean, I, so one of the reasons why this case in particular is so interesting to me, not just because I'm a trial lawyer and I love reading about great trials, but is because it really hits home with me because I remember, uh, you know, when I was a child, uh, being taught about, um, you know, creationism and, and how it was correct and evolution, evolution was wrong. And, um, and so uh, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating issue. And it, uh, I mean, I don't know what the, I, I don't know how uh, Adventists are teaching their students today, but it wouldn't surprise me if they're still oh. teaching them in a similar way. Absolutely, they still are.
1: Indeed, Steve, that's a great point because um, I had said rather broadly that people Evangelical Christians, and it was true, evangelical Christians back then did not generally believe in that the biblical story of creation was literally true, that we generally believed back then that days of creation symbolized epics of time. And that's what William Jennings Bryan believed. And so that each day of creation symbolized an epic. So we had a long earth history. But the one exception to that was your Seventh-day Adventist. That's right. The only people in the 1920s that believed that that all the animals and plant species or kinds to be precise were created literally on in seven literal days within the last 10,000 years. Now that's fairly widespread among evangelicals. But back then, it was only the Seventh-day Adventist and it had been created by a Seventh-day Adventist teacher uh, shortly before this period, building on, not on as much on the biblical writings, but the writings of the founder, the woman who founded the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he was pushing those ideas, but he was almost a, Loan then, and then his ideas were picked up in the 1950s and became much more widespread among um biologists. But if you go back to the trial, William Jennings Bryan, when on the stand, yeah. he's asked, Do you believe the world is created in 10 uh in seven days or six days within the last 10,000 years? And he said, No, I don't think that. I don't care whether the world's 6,000 years old or 60,000 years old or 600. Million years old, it doesn't matter. God created humans in his image. He didn't even care if God had done it, transformed, as the Catholics then believed, generally, that God had uh, taken an evolved ape and breathed humanity into it, which which is what is pictured on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, that sort of view, um, where you have an evolved ape and God makes it human. That's all he cared about. That humans were special and different and a purely naturalistic source of humanity through a hateful survival of the fittest. That's what he objected to. Seventh day Adventists took it one step further, but funny thing Seventh day Adventists won.
0: Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's That is absolutely right. And I, I mean, and I, 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 you know, that's one of the vivid things in my memory about being taught by them. But, uh, it, you know, the point you make, and we're going to talk a lot more about um, about the cross-examination of William Jennings Bryan. I think that's just fascinating that uh, he would even agree to that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, the, he basically by saying that, um, you know, he did not believe in it being six literal days, uh, was agreeing with the point that the defense was making that, that Clarence Darrow and others were making that, uh, you there, that there isn't really a conflict or it didn't have to be a conflict between beliefs in, uh, evolution and divine creation. And that was sort of, and, and I always thought, um, it was, uh, uh, Dudley Fields Malone, his speech that he made. And I, I was able to read some of the transcript, but, but that was, that was the point that he was making, which as a lawyer, I thought was a great point, which is, you know, the law says that it denies the divine creation of man in the Bible and uh, teaches and instead teaches man is descended descended from lower order of animal. And their argument was, well, we may be teaching that they're descended from lower uh, order of animal, but we're not denying divine creation. And that's the defense. And I thought that's a great lawyer. I mean, that's a, that is a great defense.
1: You look at you look at public opinion polls today and what they show is about, oh, 30 percent of the American population believe in that sort of Seventh-day Adventist, young earth creation. But 40 percent believe who believe in most of the people who believe in in evolution and about 40 percent of Americans in general believe in theistic evolution. that yeah we evolved, but God guided the process. God evolution has been the creative force of uh, of uh, of humanity. And if you went back then, those numbers would be even greater. Um, There wouldn't have been many who believed the Bible was literally true. They thought it was figurative. It was inspired word. But that evolution was God's tool and that God created the human soul and made humans different. And that's all Brian himself believed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how this case gets to trial and I do want to talk about the cast of characters because it's really just such an it, it, to me it's a big part of the story and and one reason why uh this case you know became so famous not nationally but carried on through history. Um you know, I was I was I guess surprised although I shouldn't have been that you know this I think this gets signed into law in March of 1925. And the indictment comes down in May of 25, and they're in, in trial at July of 1925, which, you know, uh, I mean, I guess it's a misdemeanor case. So you, so maybe that's why it goes so quick. But I mean, from a, a trial standpoint, I mean, getting your case to trial that quickly is, uh, is unheard of nowadays. Um, but, it, but obviously, because uh, this was such a, a big issue, and because they were making this into a show trial, everything moved, moved very fast and they want
1: and they wanted to have a the they, right it ties in with everything you just said that they the interest was immediate the press doesn't stay on a subject very long and the passage of this law was of immediate interest so if they wanted a high publicity show trial it had to be quick the judge was up for reelection and he wanted to facilitate this publicity effort um, to hold this trial, because that's what the people wanted. It was also a misdemeanor trial, which can happen faster. Uh, Also, the school year, when it was signed, was already over. But but by the time it took effect. But the new school year was coming. And so they wanted a resolution by the next school year. And so... It is an amazingly quick when you think about it today. And there were a lot of briefs submitted by supportive people. There were lots of expert witnesses came in, but they did it all in breakneck speed. You're absolutely right. And that um, makes it indeed different than we'd have today. But when you think about it, say the Texas um, anti-abortion restrictions that went in well, they were in court right away for injunctions. Yeah. They were up to the Supreme Court within and turning it down within a, two weeks. So if as long as you're when you're talking about that sort of thing, you can go pretty fast.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true.
2: Well, um, part of what's just interesting about it is that. um as you said, when it's an issue that's sort of, um, that's sort of ripe and important and, and, you know, especially now there are ways to accelerate things, but what's so crazy is you think about this, the kind of concerted effort and the people that are coming together and the work that's being done. And I'm always thinking about it in my mind. I'm like imagining the way that we prepare for trial, not that I've ever prepared for a case like this, but, you know, I'm thinking about all the things that you have to do to pull, um, pull things together, but they're doing it like when you can't e-file something, when you can't like easily call somebody on the phone and, you know, have a conference call to coordinate your efforts. I mean, that was the other thing, just thinking about, um, it's just fun to think about what, how You know, you've got this press interest, which like, you know, right now, okay, well, they can send somebody from their like local affiliate. And I don't know, maybe that's still what they did then. But just to think about the scope of something like this and the attention of something that this got. But in the context of not having like social media and phones and things that make information travel really quickly. It's just so interesting. I kind of can't wrap my brain around it.
1: Yeah. And remember, this was or we haven't talked about it yet. But this was people didn't view it as a regular trial. They viewed it as a show trial as a celebrity event, as a test case, they thought from the get-go, including the judge. And that's why he allowed it to be broadcast. It was, back then you couldn't, unlike today, really before, you know really, before 1990, you couldn't broadcast trials. This was the first broadcast trial in American history broadcast on the radio nationwide. Um, it was filmed. Um, in the sense that there were cameras in the courtroom and the film was every day was filmed and they built the first runway ever in Dayton, Ray County. They took out a cornfield and plowed it down and the planes would fly in every day and slide the film up to Cleveland and New York and other places to show it that day, that night in the movie theaters with people reading the transcript. Of course, there were silent movies back then, so you could see the event. You could go down to the movie theater and watch the event. So there was, and since as soon as Scopes was indicted, it was front page news around the country, and the lawyers were celebrity-minded as well. And so, and they cared about the issue. So they were willing to put everything else aside because, Every newspaper was editorializing about it. Every newspaper was writing about it. And they had, the the trial itself was telegraphed out. Back then, baseball games, that's how they did it. They used telegraphs at the baseball games and would telegraph out what was happening, balls and strikes, and then somebody would be sitting in a TV, um, in a radio studio, recreating the game. Well, they had, they strung more telephone wire than was ever strung in American history into Dayton so that all these newspapers and news media, Associated Press and others, could telegraph out. They had telegraph operators right in the courtroom, telegraphing out every word. So they could get the word out, even without social media, they could get this word out pretty fast. And back then, every town had multiple newspapers. You had Hearst, you had Pulitzer, you had all these people with chains. They all had reporters on the scene in Dayton from the get-go as this thing was developing and reporting out, and the papers were competing, the Hearst or the or the uh, Pulitzer or the different newspaper companies were competing to get the, be- the first story out with the first person, and the columnists were writing about it. So you did have a very active press in the beginnings of radio and Telegraph, and all those things were just picking this up. This was the story of the day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, l- let me uh, I'm going to introduce sort of the, the the cast of characters and then and then uh, uh, Professor Larson, you can comment on them um, where you want. But the so on the on the prosecution side, I think the first two lawyers that were involved were a pair of brothers named Herbert and Sue Hicks. And Sue is a, a man, but was named after his mother who uh, passed away at childbirth. Uh, they were initially on the prosecution team, but then very quickly, uh, the uh, I think it was the Attorney General uh, A.T. Stewart was brought in, and then another uh, Attorney General Ben McKenzie was brought in. But then the real big draw for the prosecution, as we've already talked about, was William Jennings Bryan. Uh, that was brought in and it's hard to uh, I, I was trying to think of a good analogy of, of you know, how to equate who William Jennings Bryan uh, In 1925 who that would be like nowadays, but I mean uh, just a very Well-known politician uh, I mean a, a very uh, sort of um, Popular uh, speaker writer, um, you know, and, and really uh, Loved by a lot of people uh, but he had been, as you mentioned, he had been a three time presidential candidate. In fact, one of the things I thought was interesting was that in 1896, which I think is the first time he ran for president and which he gave the very famous uh, don't crucify me on a cross of gold speech at the Democratic National Convention, where he was uh, he was um, uh, campaigning against the gold standard. Um you know, the, one of the people campaigning for him back in 1896 was Clarence Darrow, who was running for Congress at the same time in Chicago. Um, but he had he had also been the secretary of state uh, under uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, he had I mean, his nickname that you can't get a better nickname. He was known as the great commoner or, uh, you know, or the lion. Uh, in fact, I think, you know, in um, one of the things, Yvonne, I, I always, you know, when you talk about these, you um, you know, I don't know if you've ever read about the Wizard of Oz and how this was re- the Wizard of Oz is really based on history. But the story is, is that the Cowardly Lion is based on William Jennings Bryan. I mean, so he made it into popular fiction as well. Uh, and so, um, you know, he, just this really well-known and and very uh, other than the fact that he was a. Uh, uh, when it came to religion, very conservative, I, you know, was a progressive had fought for labor, had fought for, uh, uh individual rights, most of his career. And, um, and just a very, um, well-known and popular, uh, po- popular politician, uh, at the time. So really from, from the prosecution side, you couldn't get a bigger draw than William Jennings Bryan.
1: Well, that, you you've captured him so well. I don't. Even, I can't even really add to it. It's exactly the standing and stature <laughs> he had, and as long as you emphasize that he was a great speaker, a great yeah. orator, and that after he stepped down as Secretary of State, he became a, actually a professional orator. He would go around what they used to call back then the Chautauqua Circuit, the lecture circuit, and he was one of the top draws <clears> on that. Um, he gave over 200 speeches a year, so he would be public speeches. So he would be traveling around the country with a few set speeches, and s- most of which involved progressive issues or religion, but s- some increasingly included his attacks on evolution. And so you had that sort of, sort of character. If you tried to think of a politician who had similar views, maybe a Jimmy Carter. Okay, uh, yeah. Basically a progressive Democrat who who was also motivated in what he did out of his deep religious beliefs. But of course, he Ryan was a much bigger speaker and much bigger name than Jimmy Carter ever was. But that might be a, a equivalent uh, equation. I should mention one thing about you mentioned Sue Hicks. Um he knew the he knew uh later in life, he knew he. Because of this trial and other activities, he became a judge himself. He was pretty well known in East Tennessee and he knew Johnny Cash and he knew the um, writer of the story, the the song. I don't know if your people are old Uh, enough to remember a song called Boy Named Sue. It was written about him um, and and it was exaggerated. It told the story a little differently, but that was about Sue Hicks. So um, but the prosecutor, uh, the attorney general, you mentioned Tom Stewart, uh, A.T. Stewart. Um, He eventually, right after this, he becomes a U.S. Senator and served several terms as a U.S. Senate. He was a very able. uh, He wasn't just another lawyer. He was a very able uh, litigator and politician in his own right. So you had a with Brian being the most visible, you had a effective prosecution. If they would have just left it all in Tom Stewart's hands, it would have been very different.
0: Right. Uh, You know, it's funny. uh, I mean, the story about Sue Hicks, which I didn't know. I mean, that's the coolest thing. around. You get Johnny Cash writing a song about you. But um, but um, yeah, I mean, so uh, the one other person I should mention, I didn't is not is that William Jennings Bryan was uh, was uh, trying the case. But he also brought his son out there who was a I think he was a federal prosecutor at the time uh, out in California. Is that right?
1: Well, when the Democrats were in power, he was the U.S. attorney for Los Angeles. But of course, by now the Republicans were in power uh, and they were the arch enemy of the Bryans. And so he had lost his job. He was no longer, he was a practicing attorney in Los Angeles though, so he came out, Billy Jr.
0: One of the things that uh, I mean, I I think just shows what kind of a speaker that William Jennings Bryan was. um, And I'm not sure if he said this at the trial or he said it when he was just sort of uh, campaigning against uh, evolution, which I've always loved, is he talks about how he's not interested in the age of rocks, but in the rock of ages, Uh you know, just a great turn of phrase.
1: He knew how to turn a (laughs) phrase. That's right. (laughs) Mankind was not crucified on a cross of gold. He knew he knew how to turn a phrase.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and then I should also mention, and you mentioned that, uh, the judge was, uh, was named John T. Ralston. Uh, I found some great pictures of him where he's in the courtroom and and he's got two police officers around him fanning him, uh, you know, as he's going through it and, uh, and also a very conservative. One of the things I, I, I think we should also mention is before the trial started, and this just kind of tells you where they were, um, William Jennings Bryan goes to a local church and gives a speech about uh, anti-evolution and gives a speech about how the defense's case is weak before they start the trial. And sitting on the front row, the front row is uh, Judge Ralston and his family. So uh, they kind of knew uh, where uh, the defense knew where they were trying this case.
1: (laughs) John Ralston was up for reelection and though he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a conservative He was a Methodist. He wasn't a Baptist. He wasn't he wasn't really an evangelical, but he found the whole trial fascinating. But he also knew what side of his bread, the butter went on. And um, and he did. He he loved he loved handling this trial.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, on the defense side. Uh, I want to mention before we get to, to Clarence Darrow, uh, which uh, it, it, you know, and Professor, we didn't tell you. I think most of our listeners are trial lawyers, and and if you're a trial lawyer, if you don't know who Clarence Darrow is, then uh, to, you know, you well, know, that pick that's up that's correct.
1: If you but, yeah. if you take polls today, when they take polls of trial lawyers of who's the best trial lawyer, Clarence Darrow still wins those polls hands yeah. down over anybody. I should say um, um, uh, that um that he was just as famous then he was even more famous and so he he was he was beyond anything in the world of uh trial practice and that um um, if I if I do want to compare the judge, you asked for a comment, you ask a comparison to present day persons. It's not quite present day, but I think the judge would stand up about equal to Judge Ito. If you remember Judge right. Ito from. Okay. Ito. Right. Ito. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. they uh, they'd, uh, <laughs> they'd come in about even. I
0: mean, right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well, yeah So on the defense side. Uh, so there was a professor, a law school professor named John Neal, who was uh, who who uh, defended. Uh, evolutionary beliefs. And uh, it was pretty well respected in, in, at the University of Tennessee. Uh, but as far as a, as a trial lawyer, maybe not the most uh, honed as, as a trial lawyer. But then they also had Arthur Garfield Hayes, who was a very well respected lawyer from New York and uh, was on the board of the ACLU. Uh, and then they had another lawyer named Dudley Field Malone, also a very well-respected lawyer from New York. And uh, I think from what I read and what I heard, is, it sounds like maybe the best speech that anybody gave during the trial was uh, was Mr. Malone, even more than uh, even more than William Jennings Bryan or or Clarence Darrow. Well, um, the
1: problem with that is the reason that would be true, and I would agree, is that Brian never got to give his closing argument, right, which we'll get right. to later. Right, Brian's exactly. closing argument would have been the best. Yeah, but Malone gave a spellbinding speech. He was a he was really a he was a Park Avenue lawyer. He was a tremendously powerful uh, litigant. He was mostly a divorce lawyer, very highly paid, but he had also curiously been um, the Assistant Secretary of State. Under William Jennings Bryan. Right. So he right. knew Bryan from way back uh, in their service together. And you mentioned Arthur Garfield Hayes, named for three Republican presidents. Right. Um, he was um, a superstar. He would handle the labor. He was a laborer. He would handle labor cases. He was a very highly paid New York lawyer. But as a volunteer, he would handle labor cases, go around the country, handle labor cases for the ACLU. So we're talking about... Uh, uh, truly a star studded cast.
0: Yeah. Well, and and then and then, of course, there's Clarence Darrow, who was, uh, as we've mentioned, the, the most famous lawyer in the, the U.S. at the time had done a number of high profile criminal cases, including the Leopold and Loeb murders uh, and, um, and just tried a number of cases and was, and was well, well respected. I mean, both Brian and, uh, Darrow were in their sixties, uh, sort of at the tail end of their career. And we will talk a little bit about what happens to Mr. Brian after the trial, which, uh, I actually didn't know until I, until I, uh, started researching for this, uh, for this, but, um, but, um, but yeah, just known as sort of like the, the w- most well-known, uh, best lawyer, especially in his own mind, um, you know, in the nation. And uh, and what I thought was interesting about it, uh, Dr. Larson, is that it didn't seem like the ACLU and maybe some of the others on the side of of uh, the defense were all that happy about Clarence Darrow getting involved in the case. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Correct, they were not. Um, Brian, um, excuse me, Darrow, Clarence Darrow was yes, the most famous criminal defense lawyer in America, probably of all time, and maybe the best. He had literally developed pioneered techniques in jury selection, in the closing argument. Um, people would would flock to his trials, but he, he had another persona. He was also, like Brian, an incredibly popular and high paid public speaker as well as a writer but what he did is he was sort of like the richard dawkins of his day he was the national atheist he was sort of like the village atheist on a national scale he would um debate people about religion and he would pack carnegie hall he would pack any place he was where he would take the the agnostic or atheist side and somebody Um, A sort of usually a liberal religious figure like uh, Will Durant would come and argue on the other side. And he fundamentally believed that religion was the cause of much of the hate and controversy that it led to wars. It led to wars between peoples. Um, It would lead, he would, he would look at something like Richard Dawkins today looks at um, the terrorism that might come out of certain countries allied to religion, and he would generalize about it, um, which Dawkins does today, and Darrow would back then. He also had opposed World War I, um, and he had actually campaigned with Bryan against entry into World War One. but he always saw that religion was a cause of this, and the, religious would, the religion would divide us. So he wrote books and spoke widely. So he was not only a great trial lawyer, but he was also separately viewed as an enemy of religion, where Brian was, you know, a great speaker, considered one of the greatest speakers in America, and also a friend of religion. So you brought together not only two great orators, which both celebrity orators, so you brought two great orators, but you also brought together two people who the public already knew as perhaps the chief spokesperson in the country on the uh, on what was then a big issue of uh, because religion is in decline in America then. And there is a there's a real battle between um Um, a secular society, and are we still a religious society? So they brought that issue, and that's why ACLU didn't want it, because they want him, and they opposed him being in the trial. They never invited him into the trial. Um, He wanted to get in because he wanted to make it an expose of Brian's, as he called it, Brian's fundamentalism, and how that was destructive. He didn't like the idea and he often took cases that would challenge religious lawmaking, whether it Sunday closing laws or or laws against contraceptives that had a religious motive. So here he saw a chance to t- attack religious lawmaking on a big scale. So he actually went directly to Scopes and volunteered to Scopes himself. And Scopes said, hey, I want that guy. I've actually heard of that one. (laughs) And so the ACLU thought that he would distract attention because they wanted to make it a case for free speech, not a case against religion. And both Malone and and, um, uh, Arthur Garfield Hayes and the others had been committed to approach it that way, as you mentioned in Malone's speech they they wanted to make it a speech for freedom and they feared that darrow would automatically because of his fame make it a case against religion and they think if this is a case against religion we win we lose right. if right. this is a case for freedom we win
0: right Right. I, I I thought it was also interesting in hearing why uh why John Scopes chose Darrow was kind of like what you hear trial lawyers talk about now which is you know he you know the other guys could talk about constitutional issues and appellate issues and things like that but Darrow was a down in the mud brawler fighter you know a guy in the courtroom you want in your in your corner because you know he's going to get in there and fight for you and that's why he chose Darrow which is uh I, I just thought uh, you know really speaks to uh uh, uh so what kind of a lawyer Darrow was?
1: Well, the year before he had handled, he had handled the defense for a enormous fee, a historically enormous fee, he handled the defense of, of Leopold and Loeb, the two boy murderers from Chicago. And he got them off. He got them off in the sense that he didn't get executed, which was phenomenal. Indeed, Darrow had the notoriety. He, he, was, a, he was a passionate opponent of the death penalty. In all of his cases, and there were hundreds of them, nobody was none of his none of his clients was ever executed, which was a phenomenal result back then when the death penalty was so common. So that trial had been the biggest trial of the previous summer. Back then, summer seemed to be when you had big trials uh, when the media was sort of didn't talk about anything else, and so that renewed his fame. But if his fame went all the way back to really eighteen late 1880s, 1890, when he handled the the defense of Eugene V. Debs and uh, defense of the people involved with the great Pullman strike. But then it was case after case after case. But that made him very controversial because many middle Americans and many um, hated the guy because he was always defending leftists and union leaders and the wealthy murderers. He had right. his subtax of wealthy murderers, and then of course the great McNamara case, the ones of the LA, Times, the bombing of the LA Times. Um, he was accused of bribing the jury, and only got off, sort of in a sort of a hung jury, um, with a very good lawyer and California saying, "Well, we won't try again if you never come back into the state of California," which he didn't. So he also had the the issue with bribing the jury hanging around his neck. So he was a very controversial individual and the ACLU said, that's not a winner. That's not a winner for us. And it was and it wasn't. Um, they, there was certainly some truth uh, to it. They lost some of the lawyers who had agreed to help them right. um, because they didn't wanna be associated with such a radical as Clarence Darrow.
2: Hey everyone. So we had so much good stuff to talk about with Professor Larson that we split this into two episodes. So this is the end of part one and you can check out part two next week.